Welcome, everyone, to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting-edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Take your phone out. Take your phone out. But first stand up. Look at your phone. And if it's in airplane mode, sit down. Okay. Once it's in airplane mode, you can sit down. Put it in airplane mode first. Why? Because even though we don't trust a damn word the WHO says, they acknowledged that it was a class 2B carcinogen 11 years ago. But they lied. It's a class 2A. It's every bit as dangerous as smoking. And it's another damn scam that's gone over, largely as a result of similar strategies that the tobacco industry instituted that I clearly identified in my best-selling book, EMF. And if you're interested in more, that's, that's the book to, that really, I think it is the best book written about EMF because it goes in, took me, it was probably the longest book it took me to write too. The Great Reset, everyone has heard about that. It's coming, it's coming. And we had this article, I think a week or two ago, called The Polycrisis, which is a combination of a variety of different fact variables that they've been deployed to make things go from bad to really bad and worse. So what are some of these things? And we see them every day, we know it. So what are they gonna release? Probably another bioweapon, right? It's interesting, I was watching Jimmy, Jimmy Dore last night, and he was, I loved him as a comedian, he's so great. Uh, and he was discussing how different mainstream or legacy media was having articles about monkeypox. And it's been well documented that the, the SARS-CoV-2 came from a lab leak. There, no one is disputing that anymore. It's well established. But as soon as anyone suggests even that monkeypox is, came from the same lab, then they're, they're labeled and criticized as misinformation. I don't think, but fortunately, you know, Americans are foolish or stupid, and they've learned, most of them. So I don't think they're gonna get away with it the next time, but you never know. Obviously we have supply chain disruptions. Food shortages seems to be coming. It's, we put a lot of uh, effort in trying to provide information on some of the strategies you can use to build up your food storage supplies. Cyber warfare, this could be a big one. This may be the one that takes things out. I had a, oh, a discussion with David Martin, this wasn't an interview, and he believes that if they take out the grid, they could really wipe out a large portion of the population. I mean, like huge percentage, if the grid goes out for months. So that is a possibility. And, and this is so easy to be a red, a, a false flag. And they can claim it's a, a terrorist of some sort. And wh who's gonna prove it otherwise, right? So cyber warfare, economic collapse is, is clearly inevitable, and that's why they've created this great reset because 
it's a, a math, mathematical inevitability that the current financial system is, has got to collapse. It cannot survive. So the Great Reset is going to recalibrate that whole system when it comes. In global totalitarianism, we've never had that before. We've had it in countries like Russia, China, and Germany, but never globally. And that's what we're heading for. I don't want to be a Debbie Downer, but there is light at the end of the tunnel. So I've presented this slide in many presentations. And the last, and no one ever asked me after a presentation until like a few weeks ago when I was in Denver presenting at an Ozone conference. I had not one, not two, but five different people come up to me and say, what the heck is the light? What is the light? They got me thinking. What is the light? What is the light at the end of the tunnel, right? You and I are the light. Because this is going to be a pretty dark time. Maybe one of the darkest times in the history of humanity. I don't know why we're clapping for that, but, <laughs> but I'm pretty confident everything that I know points to that. I'm not looking forward to it, and I pray to God it doesn't happen, but I just don't see how it's not going to. So it's going to be dark. And, they, and the whole world needs our light. Because so you, you cannot see in darkness if there's no light. So in an effort to help you with that, I think one of the best things we can, you can do is to be healthy. Because you're going to need to be healthy to survive what's coming. There's just no way around it. And if you aren't, it, it, you're, the game's over. So I think the health really vectors on understanding one of the most fundamental parts of human biology, which is the mitochondria. That is, who, who has heard of the mitochondria before? All right, good. All right, so let me just give a review for those who haven't. These are little organelles, which is like a mini organ with inside your cell. These are in your cell. So a lot of people raise their hands. How many, and they're in each of our cells, most all of our cells, not our red blood cells, but most of the other cells. How many mitochondria do we have in our body? Billions. Who said billions? Trillions? Are you crazy? Does anyone think it's more than trillions? A few wise people. It's about a hundred quadrillion. That's a thousand trillion. Okay? Quadrillion. If your cell has a mitochondria, it can have anywhere from several hundred, which is typical, to even millions, which is in a specific area of your brain called the substantia nigra, which is responsible for Parkinson's. So what, what do they do? These, these organelles were originally bacteria, prokaryotes. And they have this special quality where they can take oxygen. And they came out three billion years ago that our, our pregenitor cells, or the humanity, whatever those cells were, they ingested these, these bacteria that are mitochondria, and they allowed that bacteria, the cell that ingested them, to use the oxygen in the air to generate energy in a very efficient way. 
and create about 20 times more energy than, you, than is done through anaerobic respiration, which is the way most bacteria generate energy. And the reason why this is so important is because it, even though it generates a lot of energy, there's, there's an exhaust to this energy creation. And the exhaust is a small percentage, about five or 10%, that creates something called a reactive oxygen species. And that is very dangerous and damaging to your body. I'm gonna go over a variety of strategies to help you reduce this oxidative stress, what I perceive as the most important ones. Because when your mitochondria don't work, you're not gonna have energy. Does anyone ever feel like this? It's usually because your mitochondria are impaired in some way. And that, because they generate about 85% of the energy that your body uses. In fact, they create energy in the form of uh, ATP. And how much energy, how much ATP do you think your body generates in one day? Take a guess. A few grams, a pound, what do you think? I mean, they're really small, right? It generates your entire body weight in ATP every day. That's how much you use. And it's done through these, those little guys, those, these mitochondria. So what's the three worst ways to lose your mitochondria function? Too much iron. If you're an adult, who, and if you're a male for sure, uh, and, or if you're a woman who's not menstruating much, if you have a really heavy flow, then you probably may not have too much iron, but almost everyone else does and, and would benefit from reducing that. The other one that hardly anyone appreciates is you're not getting enough sun exposure. And that has to do with a, a very important biological antioxidant called melatonin that 99.9% .9 of physicians have no clue and understanding of how that's created in the mitochondria. And probably the biggest is the omega-6 fat excess, which I've been talking about a lot lately. Has anyone not heard of too much linoleic acid? All right, good. We're gonna go into that at the end of this. So let's talk about the iron. What you wanna to do to improve your mitochondrial function is start to remove it. Even though you need it and without iron, you're dead. In fact, there's iron molecules in your mitochondria. See, what your mitochondria do is they take the energy in the form of the food you eat, primarily carbohydrates and fat, and they break it down to two carbon molecules. The, the glucose is, is, is uh, metabolized to a three-carbon molecule called pyruvate, and then it's broken down into acetyl-CoA. Pyruvate goes into the mitochondria and it's metabolized to acetyl-CoA, and then the fats are beta-oxidized to the same molecule, acetyl-CoA, and acetyl-CoA goes into these enzymes on the inner mitochondrial membrane that, that actually produce the energy. And these enzymes are called cytochromes, and in some of the cytochromes, there's iron. And if you don't have enough iron, the mitochondria will not work. But the problem is most of us have too much iron, and it short circuits them. So this is not, excess iron is, is also an example of other forms of oxidative stress. But excess iron is a, is a big one because it combines with uh, hydrogen peroxide, which is generated in the energy production sequence in the mitochondria. And when iron combines with hydrogen peroxide, it creates something called hydroxyl-free radical, which is a very, it's called a Fenton reaction. It's a very dangerous reaction because that just damages your cell membranes, your stem cells, your proteins, your DNA, and your mitochondria. So here's a study published a few, about three years ago, 
that shows the connection between excess iron and inflammation and the number one cause of death, atherosclerosis and heart disease. But we, there's also lots of evidence that's showing that those who get multiple transfusions live a lot longer because they don't have this excess oxidative stress. So how many people are donating their blood regularly? All right, it's a small fraction. We like to see almost every hand go up. Not only do you help yourself, which is the primary reason to do it, the self-serving, but you know the, your blood can be used by others, and there's no cost to, the, to donate your blood other than your time. You can do it for free. Now, some people won't be able to because of a variety of limitations they have. I personally don't think anyone who's been jabbed should be donating their blood, but, but that's not the restrictions at this point. Yeah, so, and the older you are, the more important it becomes because what, I'm, I'm going to be putting, putting out a book with Morley Robbins, who is really uh, an expert on this. And the book's not going to be out for about two years, maybe even three years, though. And what I didn't understand before I connected with Morley is that this iron gradually accumulates in your body and your tissue stores build up and up and up and up until they get ridiculously high. And it's probably one of the main reasons why you're taken out biologically prematurely. Too much iron. So that's why it's so important to remove the blood four times a year uh, or more. I actually do a different system. I take my blood out once a week and I take out two ounces, which is about seven blood uh, units per, per year, seven pints per year, because I believe this is a really important thing to do. Now, if you, you can actually hire phlebotomists to come to your house. I don't know what the charge is, it was probably $100 or in that ballpark or maybe more. And they could take out like a half a pint, which is 250 cc's. Or, or if you're gonna do it every month, this is the, the dosage reg regimen that seems to work for most people that get into problems. Men is 150 cc's, and a, a pint of blood is about 500 cc's or half a liter. But it's, I think it's better to take out less more frequently, but it's just gonna be a lot more costly to do that uh, because your body has more time to recover. If you're, that's why you can't only don't, typically donate four times per year because it takes a while to recover when you're donating. Ten, that's 10% 10 of your blood supply. So if you take out less, you can probably donate more. So there are some blood tests that you can do to see if you're, that will give you an approximate level of your iron content or storage. One is a serum ferritin. When I was practicing in Chicago, I did this test on every one of my patients. And back then I didn't understand that the level should be a lot lower. I thought it should, anything close to 100 was okay, but it probably should be 20 to 35, maybe even 20. And even with the high levels ranges I was using back then, it was like a half to a third and people had elevated ferritin levels. If you have an elevated ferritin level, now the problem with ferritin is it's a, it's a, uh, a marker of inflammation. So if you have an infection, a cough or cold, and you get your blood tested, it's gonna be falsely elevated. So you have to be careful. But assuming you don't have inflammation going on, and you can know that, but there's another test called HSCRP, which is high sensitivity C-reactive protein. And if that's normal, then you don't have inflammation. So that's how you can tell. But there's some other tests too, a TIBC, which is total iron binding capacity, serum transfer and CBC, which will 
give you an idea of where your iron status is. So vitamin D, I've done a lot of that, been promoting vitamin D for two decades. How many people have had a vitamin D in 60 to 80? Well, that's pretty good. How many people are, keep your hands up. How many people are doing that without supplementation? That's not as good. Okay, congratulations for those who kept their hands up. That's really good. Because of you. Yes. So I was confused on this too because you know I, I knew vitamin D was good and I just believed that it didn't matter where you got your vitamin D from, but it does. And I would suspect most everyone in this room lives locally and that's Florida. So you're in the best place, right? I mean, it's only about, even, I live further north. I mean, I love technology because at nine o'clock this morning, I was still in my house. <laughs> and that's, um, it's north of Daytona. So thankfully I was able to get her and uh, through the magic of flying. <laughs> but I live a little further north. And, but most people are living down here, so you can probably, it's only maybe two months of the year where you're not going to have enough sun to make vitamin D, which is, this is like one of the best places in the whole country. I, really, I, I think so. So, you, so there's almost no excuse to ever be taking a vitamin D pill for people in this room. You just need to make a point to get out in the sun. And preferably around solar noon, which is 1 o'clock p.m. because we're in daylight savings time, which is a screwy system which we don't need in South Florida, but nevertheless we have it. And uh, so solar noon is one o'clock, unless, unless they get rid of daylight savings time. So sun is where you want to get it from because there's other benefits. Obviously vitamin D, there's ultraviolet B radiation, UVB, but it only works if it's, you know, you can, you can live in Florida, you can live in Dubai, but if you're inside, you're not gonna get vitamin D. And you still, even if you go outside, you have to shed your clothes, as many of them as you can. Otherwise, it's, it's not gonna work. You have a sunscreen, essentially. So this is the, what I was alluding to earlier. Uh, I, I had a, a seminal article that we published in the spring. It was uh, a MedCram video, and it, 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 Roger Sahel, I, I challenged to remember his last name, but Roger. He's a physician out of UCLA. Uh, he actually uncovered this connection between sunlight exposure, specifically near infrared on your skin, increasing the melatonin in your mitochondria. Now, I'm sure some of you read that article. So normally mitochondria or melatonin we think is produced in the pineal gland, right? And it's the, it's the, the hormone of darkness you don't make it in the daytime, you make it at night, at least from the pineal, and then it helps you optimize your sleep. But you need sun exposure in the daytime to have the pineal do that. But how much is produced in the pineal gland versus the mitochondria? Does anyone remember? Okay, take a guess. Is it half? No. 95% of the melatonin in your body is produced in your mitochondria. 95%. So that benefit may be almost as important as vitamin D. And why? 
Why the hell did Mercola go on and on about mitochondria? Why did he talk? You know, so you have the basis to understand that when you have melatonin in your mitochondria, that is sort of the buffer, or the, the antidote. It's the fire extinguisher for the, for the reactive oxygen, ox, the oxidation burning that happens if you, do, if you can't neutralize it. So when you're making this energy, if you have a lot of melatonin reserve in your mitochondria, you're gonna radically reduce oxidative stress. That's why it's so important. That alone should be getting to the sun every day. It's crucial to get this melatonin. And we didn't, you know how new this information, I'm I referenced earlier, 99.9%, .9%, maybe 99.99% of physicians do not know this. This is unknown. There's a very, maybe even less than that. You know, because it's only two or three years old. It's like, I think it's less than three years old. It was just discovered. Certainly, I mean, it's, it's this decade, not even this century. It's this decade. So this is new information. Now, some will also, the UVA and the near infrared will also make nitric oxide, and that's important for optimizing your blood pressure. Structured water. I'm sure some people in here drink structured water, right? Gerald Pollack's work, the fourth phase of water. Well, guess what infrared radiation on your skin does? It causes your body to make structured water, which is important because your red blood cells are actually significantly bigger than your smallest blood vessels, your capillaries. So you figure, how are they going to squeeze through that tiny space, right? The, you know how they do it? They do it through structured water, which actually has stored energy potential that, that the red blood cells use to squeeze through. And it's going to be a lot easier if you've been exposing your skin to, to sunlight. And it actually helps you feel good. No one would dispute that in the winter, one of the main therapies for seasonal affective disorder is sunshine. And you know how it does that? It actually increases serotonin. It's an antidepressant. So for this, you've just got to make a commitment to figure out how you're going to change your life to shed the majority of your clothes and get out in the sun around solar noon, ideally about an hour. And you're going to say, well, Doc, the heck, do you think I want to get sunburn and skin cancer? Right? Do you think, really, really think that God was stupid enough to let sun exposure cause skin cancer? No, no. It can trigger it, but only if you're eating foolishly. And we'll talk about this at the end, which is linoleic acid. It's actually the omega-6 fat that almost everyone has 20 times the amount they're eating, supposed to eat, that actually causes skin cancer. And then the, the, the sun is just the catalyst for it. So if you have a low limb, like I said, you'll, you'll never get skin cancer. Well, at least I think you'll never get skin cancer. And you won't get sunburn. I mean, this has been well documented. Many people shift the diet and cut, up, cut down their omega-6 fat. They just don't get sunburned anymore. Astaxanthin also helps, too, in your transition. I love anesthesiathin. Okay, so vitamin D has many similar benefits of melatonin. So ultraviolet is only 7% of the radiation of the sun. Infrared is more than half. Now, 
there's a wide range of frequencies within infrared. There's near, mid, and far. And about the near is about 40% or so. And that's what causes most of the benefits is the near infrared. Now you can get it from the sun. I was actually in my near infrared sauna this morning because I knew I was not going to be in the sunshine today. So I got to do a sauna and near infrared exposure. So melatonin is not just a sleep hormone. As we mentioned, it's an antioxidants, but it's also involved in so many other areas. Growth hormone. Uh, it also stimulates other antioxidants. So melatonin itself obviously is a direct antioxidant, but it causes your body to make something called glutathione, which I'm sure almost everyone has heard of, which is really important antioxidant. But you, you know, so this, and you get, there, you get this for free. There's nothing to pay to get mel mitochondrial melatonin other than the price to be in the sun. And this was the, the landmark article from Dr. Ryder that went into this. And I mentioned this in the earlier article I did this year, which is a, a question I had, reminds me. I, how many people here are on my Substack? Substack. Take control of your own substance. So a relatively small percentage. So this, you know, there's a few articles that we, we you know, if after 48 hours our articles disappear, well, they don't disappear. They just migrate over to Substack. And we do that for legal protection. Not legal, but it's keep me alive, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> More important than legal. <laughs> this is one that's on Substack, though, and you can do it. Now, you, for those, I'm actually surprised. I thought it'd be higher percentage of people would be on Substack. I don't know what the thought process is, but, you know, we donate the Substack charges. I mean, when you do, do that, you're not only supporting me, but you're supporting Substack infrastructure and platform as a, as a bastion for free speech. Because, you know, everything is being censored, right? But Substack doesn't really censor anything. But, and then we donate our, the proceeds from the Substack to our nonprofits, like BARB. So it, it's just a win-win. But anyway, for, you know, YouTube deplatformed me they, last year because they woke up one morning and decided that uh, if you ever said anything bad about anti, uh, anti vaccines before, you're banned. And it wasn't like, a, there was, you didn't get one strike or two strikes, it was just instantaneous. Because we, we had no strikes when they took us out, we had zero strikes. Because we per, virtually had, were not posting anything on YouTube, because we knew they would ban us, right? So, so anyway, the reason I'm mentioning that is that you could go on BitChute, B-I-T-C-H-U-T-E, and type in my name, and almost all of my past interviews are up there. So that's where all this stuff is. I just interviewed Dr. Ryder, who wrote this article. He's, he's a, he got his PhD in 1964. He's written 1,600 articles on melatonin, 1,600 studies. And I think it's gonna be, it's not this week, tomorrow's interview is Dr. Malone. Robert Malone, you're gonna like that one. And then the other, uh, Dr. Ryder will probably be the following week, yeah. So Janet assured me that, Janet, why don't you stand up? Janet is my sister, who's worked with me. She started work for me for since 1985, 1985. And then Jim is her twin brother, who I haven't seen Jim for a long time, but he decided to come. Go ahead and stand up, Jim. This is my, this is my brother. 
He was my inspiration to do weight training. Because <laughs> he, he could, he, we used to bench press over 300 pounds. Yeah, for sure. I'm never getting there, not for bench pressing. So, largely as a result of the interview with Dr. Ryder, I understood that high dose melatonin should be, you should have an emergency kit. And in that emergency kit should be melatonin. Ideally sublingual, just not to use necessarily, but to have the ability to use it. And, it, and when I say an emergency kit, it means you need to have it in your house before the emergency. You can't order it and get it three days later so it's going to work. Why do you want it? Because there, what's the number one cause of death? Heart disease, right? Heart attacks, strokes. And have those interestingly increased recently? <laughs> because of clotting. So what happens in those conditions? You have a blood clot that forms. It blocks the tissue that is normally uh, perfusing. And then it, there, there's an oxygen deficit. And then at some point, there's a process called reperfusion where the blood flow starts up again. And in that time where the blood flow comes back in, it's called a reperfusion injury. That may be the majority of the damage that gets, gets done during that time. And if you load the body with high doses of antioxidants like melatonin, you can radically decrease that injury. So if you have a heart, it only works during this critical window. So you have to have it in your house. So if you, you could take this melatonin, it'll be, and Dr. Ryder goes into it in great detail next week, you could use it to prevent the damage from a heart attack. Now, if, if you had a heart attack a week or two ago, it's not gonna work. You gotta do it right in the critical threshold, the window. And interestingly, you can also use methylene blue. Methylene blue will, it has a different mechanism, although it does an antioxidant, but it also works to improve mitochondrial function. And the third thing that should be in your emergency kit, who? Who has a nebulizer and peroxide at home? Oh, that's good. I'm, it's high, but I was hoping it'd be higher. Hopefully one of the things you can do this weekend, put in your to-do list, is go to Amazon, look up my old articles, go to BitChute, Mercola, type in nebulized peroxide, and my, all my videos will come up. You know, all the details on how to do that. But you need that in your home, because you, know, you don't know what the next bioweapon will be, right? Maybe it will be monkeypox. I doubt it, but who knows? Maybe it's hemorrhagic fever virus. Who knows what they're going to treat? But, but you have to be ready for it. Now, this is an interesting slide. This article came out this month, earlier this month. This shows data that we had before this as to how metabolically inflexible, how, how many, how, what percentage of the population do you think has good mitochondrial function? What, what, what percentage do you think? Take a guess. 10, 12? Oh, you guys are close, you're pretty good. Now, the, I heard some, some number of people say 12, and prior to the publication of this study, that was the correct answer, because that was the only data that we had. And that was uh, data from the NHANES that was analyzed up until 2016, because it takes time to analyze these, and that study showed 88% of the people were metabolically unfit. This study went up to 2018, two years later, published in the Journal of American Cardi College of Cardiology by Tufts University, 93.2% of the U.S. metabolically inflexible. 6.8% are fit. 
This was 2018 data. So whoever yelled out 5% or possibly even 2%, you might be right. Because this is 2018 data. We don't even have the 2022 data, post, especially post-COVID. So what can you do? One of the important principles is, I actually wrote another book called Keto Fast, a, goal, a oldie but goodie, which goes into how you can implement a fast. And if you are obese, and we have 45% of the country are obese, not just overweight, obese, those are the people who benefit from considering a multi-day water fast because it's gonna help them quite a bit. It's, actually, it's a good thing because if you're, you know, having extra body fat is, is actually a survival benefit because humanity historically has always gone through times of food shortage and famine. And if you didn't have a, lot, a surplus of calories packed on, you weren't gonna survive. So the benefit is, you know, with so many people being heavy, they can probably survive a food shortage for a few months, maybe six months, maybe a year. So, but if they want to do it safely, this book is the way to do it. And insulin resistance is really the cornerstone of why people tend to gain weight. And I believe insulin resistance is primarily caused by excess omega-6 fat, not excess carbs. It's not excess carbs. Now, I wouldn't recommend drinking a, a big gulp a few times a day, but, but you know, that's not healthy, but you don't, it's the, it's the omega-6 fat. Most of us have about, almost all of us have the majority of the energy stored in our bodies in the form of fat. A very small percentage, about 5%, if you're obese, it might be 1% of your total calories are stored in your, in your, as glycogen in your muscles or your liver. But you've got a lot more in your fat. So one of the best ways to access is to, is to start something called time-restricted eating, which is actually a form of fasting. It's a type of fasting called intermittent fasting. And I was just, did anyone see my interview with Polly on CHD yesterday? Raise your hand if you did. Well, there's a few, that's oh, good. Did you like it? And I was kind of shocked because like right when I got on, the week before she said, do you want to come on? So I said, sure. So we were going to talk about intermittent fasting. So I sent her this book. She actually read it. <laughs> I started doing it, which is, you know, the big challenge is because most people are guilty of FTI, which is failure to implement, but not Polly. She did it, and she had these blazing migraines, and I remember Jan, my sister, had migraine, diagnosed her in 1985, and in her case, it was due to, to NutraSweet, um, which is aspartame. So, but Polly's seemed, she was the first time she had them and she went on this time shift to eating and it radically improved. So she was a big believer. We're gonna have that interview probably in a future uh, article. But anyway, the, the important principle is time-restricted eating because only 10% of us eat in a 12-hour window. 10%. You know, it, it's interesting in, in my perspective that that mirrors pretty closely the number of people who are metabolically unfit, <laughs> right? So, just restricting your eating window will go a very long way towards doing it. And when you combine that with eliminating as much omega-6 in your diet as you can, you, you just, it, there's almost no way your body can't be, have a normal body weight, eventually. It takes a while. But you, it, it, it just, because your, your 
unconsciously your calorie intake goes down because you're not as addicted to food and there's this really important biological, neurological mechanisms that occur when you lower omega-6 fat. And so you're satiated much easier. So you wanna get this to a six to eight hour window. Then really important to know, Polly had done this. She was doing it from 11 to seven, but I recommended that she switch it back a little bit, maybe going up to nine or 10 and making sure she stops eating sooner because you want at least a three to four hour window before you go to bed. I go for a five or six. I actually, most of the time, it's closer to six hours for me before I go to bed. So sarcopenia, it's a big issue. Uh, my parents taught me this one. They both died from uh, essentially sarcopenia and frailty, which is what sarcopenia leads to. The last thing you want to do is not to be able to ambulate and move and continue in your normal daily activities. And if you don't have muscles, it's going to be a big issue. So this is a demonstration of the massive muscle mass I had when I was in medical school. <laughs> huge, huge biceps. I think it was about nine inch bicep. <laughs> and then I continued the insanity because at that point I was probably running. It started in 68, this was probably 82, 83, so I was like running for 15 years. And I continued it for another 25 years, maybe 40 years before I said, this is not a good strategy. So I stopped. And I started doing weight training. This is my per PR. This is 600 pounds leg press. It's 10 reps. That's my trainer for the last decade, 12 years. <laughs> so obviously my biceps are a little bit bigger than nine inches there. <laughs> so I put on about 30 pounds of muscle mass in the last two years. And I just turned 68. So you guys can do it. You guys can do it. And if you, I think we, you have to increase your protein. Our lead article today just happens to be an interview with Rhonda Patrick and a protein scientist, protein or muscle scientist. I'm not sure what his specialty is, but anyway, they discuss protein use. And you've got to have enough protein. Because you can do the stimulus, you can do the weight training, resistance training, but unless you're eating enough protein, you are not going to build muscle mass. And most people aren't eating enough. I, I, was, I was reading the comments this morning. There's just some, some clueless people commenting. Oh, you only need 30 grams of protein. So, okay. You know, anyway, the, the, there's, a, there's enormous science backing these recommendations up. So you need work towards a gram of protein per kilogram of body weight, which is almost two grams of protein, which is easier to do. Specifically, the recommendation that we rec advise in today's article is uh, 1.2 grams. If you're, if you're exercising, seeking to gain muscle mass, 1.2 grams per kilogram, which is about 1.7 grams per body, pound of body weight instead of per kilogram. So it's a lot more. I mean, it's at least, I mean, it's, you, everyone knows what they weigh, so that's how much protein you probably have. Now, if you're massively overweight and obese, then that really, it's really, 
that recommendation is based on lean muscle mass. So you, know, you don't want to take too much protein, because that's not good either. And I believe strongly that it should be animal protein. Why? Because there's a lot of benefits to animal protein. Carn the four C's, carnitine, carnosine, choline, and creatine. Uh, carnosine is really important for protecting mitochondrial function. It actually, when you eat bad fat like omega-6 fat, or even too much sugar and your blood sugar is high, it forms, I'm sure people have heard of ages, right? Advanced glycation end products. Well, there's something even worse than age, ages, which is ALEs or oxalams, which advance lipoxidation end products. Well, this reason I'm mentioning that because carnosine will work for ages and also ALEs. And the ALEs are much more dangerous than, than, the, than the glycosylated sugars. And it forms this sacrificial sink, so it just, it, it, the, these damaging molecules attack carnosine and not your body tissue. And you get carnosine for free with meat. You don't want to, not all meats are good. You want to stay away from chicken and pork. And we'll talk about that in a moment. Chicken and pork. You knew that, right? Who didn't know chicken and pork wasn't any good? Oh my gosh. You've got to be kidding. I'll tell you why in a moment. Now we're going to an antiquated slide. Because I forgot to change the, the title of this. Because there is, this is not the most dangerous health experiment in human history. Although maybe you could make an argument for it. What is the most dangerous health experiment in human history? What? Yes, it's the vaccines. It's not cholesterol, it's the vaccines. This is clearly more dangerous than cholesterol. I mean, that's a scam too. But it's interesting, they did the same damn scams, the same perversions of truth and manipulation of statistics that they did with cholesterol, they did with the vaccine jab, right? Same thing. It's confusing and conflating absolute and relative risk. But this is, this you've got to take home. This is, you've got to do it. You do not want to come back and have me accuse you of FTI, failure to implement. You've got to do this. Seed oils. It's given the vegetable oils because vegetables are healthy, of course, right? No. So you want to say, now if you have any, if you see any of these things in your house or your relative's house, what you want to do is stop instantly, close your eyes, take a deep breath and say, and, and think of a neighbor or a relative that you don't like and give them to them, right? These are poison. These are metabolic poisons. And they're in virtually every processed food. They're in virtually every restaurant you go to. There is almost no restaurant you can go to that will not have this in your, in your food. Why are processed foods so dangerous? It is not the sugar. Because almost every processed food has two to three times as much omega-6 as it does the glucose. This is the killer. This is the killer. You go back to 1860, take, turn the clock back, 160 years ago, 162 years, but 160 years. The amount of linoleic acid, and there are some populations on the planet that have this type of diet, the amount of linoleic acid in their fat tissue was well under 
Do you know what that number is today? 25 to 40%. Now, this is by its, I said it's a metabolic poison. In the right amount, it's okay. You need it. It's necessary. It is impossible to get no linoleic acid if you are eating food. It's in almost every food you eat. So you can't get too low. It's called an essential fat, but it shouldn't be because you can get it. And I'm even questioning whether even omega-3 is an essential fat now. Because if you, that may sound like heresy, but if you get your linoleic acid level to under 2% or maybe 3%, your body will be able to convert the ALA, that's an omega-3 fat found in plants, alpha-linoleic acid, and many animals, into the higher order omega-3 fats like EPA and DHA. But you've got to have a low linoleic acid or it does not work. Does not work. So you can see, look at, look at the consumption of the vegetable oils. See what it was at the very far left? How it was 19, that's 1909. That was four, five, nearly 50 years after they started increasing it. 50 years. But look what it is today. You want to see this next graph? You'll love this one. Obesity is correlated strongly with the omega-6 fat, not with sugar. I can show you other, I have, you know, this is obviously a condensed time, but there are many other graphs that show the, the sugar going down by 20, 30% and obesity going up. It's not correlated with sugar, it's correlated with omega-6 fat. And this, the obesity prediction for the end of this decade is 50%. This is the United States. We are the fattest country in the world. We also consume the most seed oils of any country in the world, per capita. We also consume the most seed oils per capita of any country in the world. This is an illustration I create. I'm a very gifted PowerPoint creator. <laughs> Oxidative stress causes catastrophic linoleic acid damage. This cascades that generates something called oxlams, oxidative linoleic acid metabolites. Most famous being 4-HNE, hydroxynodinol. And uh, that just causes just incredible damage in your body, Mito primarily mitochondrial dysfunction and failure, insulin resistance. What is, what is the highest source of seed oils in your diet? Because now, are you convinced? Are you motivated to get them out of your diet? Is anyone not? Okay. If you, okay, whoever raised it, you can get out. <laughs> So you want to know what this highest source is. What's number one, right? Take a guess. What's that? Vegetable meat? <laughs> well, you could say vegetable meat and it would be right, you know, it's the fake meat, right? Do you, do you know why fake meat is so damn dangerous? Take a guess. It's because they have to have fat in there. And almost all the fat is derived from seed oils. It's typically soybean or canola oil. So conventional meat, no. Well, actually, yes, but which, what's that? Yeah, but which type of conventional meat? You are correct, that is the answer. No, beef is the best. Yeah, chicken, chicken. Okay, why? Why? Because they feed them 
seed oils, or grains that are high in these omega-6 fats. And they're monogastric animals, just like us. They have one stomach. So as a result of that physiology, they can't change the, the, the structure of that fat. They, can't, they don't have a hydrogenation chamber to, to actually saturate the fat, like an animal with multiple stomachs. Ruminants or cows or sheep or lambs. So pigs are another monogastric animal. You can have healthy chicken and healthy pork. No question about it. But you're not going to find it almost anywhere in this country. 99.999% of it is fed conventional. You can, I don't care if it's organic, biodynamic, poultry feed. It's loaded with grains. And they'll, those chickens are designed to have less than 2% linoleic acid in their body, in the fat, right? Our chickens are 20, 25% in this country. And pork is even worse. So since chicken is perceived to be, has been perceived to be a health food for a long time, it's number one on the list, chicken and pork. Chicken and pork. Do not eat chicken and pork. No bacon Nope, unless you raise that hog yourself. No. What's that? No, you have to, the animals have to be raised ancestrally, so they can't have any grains. If they have grains, they're gonna be high in linoleic acid. It is possible, it's biologically possible. This is the way all chicken, I mean, the chickens that we have today are perversions. I mean, if you ever saw a chicken from 100 years ago, it was a totally different animal. They were much smaller. I happen to have chickens. I have 16 chickens in my house. And I feed them the right food. So they're one of the exceptions, you know, my chickens. Now, I don't eat my chickens, I eat their eggs. And I brought some eggs for my family today, so. I usually, when I come, when I come to visit, I usually bring, I brought like three dozen eggs, so, because. What's the question? That what about the eggs you can buy at the grocery store? Well, it's, it's a quantity. It's not like, even though it's just a metabolic poison, the highest source of linoleic acid in my diet is chicken eggs, even though they're my chickens. But it's still three grams. I have four eggs. And even, and the chronometer, which I'll talk about in the next slide or so, nails it out at four grams. So I don't want to make you get too upset and distressed because it, it's all about keeping it balanced. You, you want totally less than 2% of your total calories is linoleic acid. So if you're going to get it from chicken eggs, that's not bad, three grams. You can probably go four, five, six grams a day. So you need some, and that would be fine. You just can't have it in other foods. But it's still going to be relatively high. You can get chicken eggs if they're the right food that are 75%, 80% lower in linoleic acid. Now, most all olive oil and avocado oils are bad news. Olive oil. Really? You think I'm kidding? Do you think I'm kidding? 
No. Why? Because 80% of them are adulterated. Organic biodynamic, it doesn't matter. You've got to be paying like $50 a quart. Now, we sell some really good biodynamic olive oil, and I can guarantee you it is not adulterated. But I still wouldn't recommend, this is not a magic oil that you can have in unlimited quantities. I would still recommend limited to about a tablespoon a day. You know? But you have to find the healthy stuff. So we've got a brand called Soul Spring, which has really good stuff. I mean, it's biodynamic. It's the best biodynamic brand in the whole country. Maybe the world. I don't know. Is it the whole world? Is it the best? This is Ronnie Cummins from Organic Consumers who works with uh, helping us develop that. But avocado oils and olive oils you want to avoid unless you are absolutely certain of the source. Now, we're not the only ones that sell good stuff. There's a lot of specialty stores that sell, but you've got to make sure it's not adulterated. Most of it is. All processed foods, as I mentioned earlier, all processed foods loaded with seed oils. One of the best things you can do is just stop all processed foods. Zero. Zero. Your health will explode. All seeds and nuts is another ostensibly healthy food. Seeds and nuts, right? There's only one nut that doesn't have high omega concentration omega-6. Do you know what that nut is? Macadamia nuts. Most, I, know, I thought the guys would get it. Macadamia nuts. But seeds and nuts. Now, if you have like a half a teaspoon or something, it's not going to be a big deal, right? It's a matter of quantity. But when people have nuts, you know, they're having like four ounces, eight ounces, a pound. You know? Almonds are terrible. Not only are they loaded with linoleic acid, but they're high in oxalates. Oh, this thing. So, one of the reasons why sugar is so bad, you're, as I said, you have a, a very limited quantity. Maybe you have two-day supply in your, in, your, in your tissues. I forget this, what the specific gram, number of grams it is. But you have two days stored in your liver and your muscles in the form of glycogen. In two days, you can get that down to essentially zero. Now, you can't get it down to zero because your body doesn't like zero and it's going to want to build it back up. It has a process in your liver. You make blood, you make sugar. It's called gluconeogenesis. But you essentially can burn your, all your supplies of carbohydrate in your body out in two days. Do you know how long it takes to, if you have the pork, the bacon, you know how long it's going to take for that bacon to get out of your cells? How long? Seven years! The half-life is over two years. So yeah, you'll get half of it out in two years. <laughs> That's why it's so bad, because it sticks around for a long, long time. Sugar, here and gone. Here today, gone tomorrow. Omega-6, here today, gone seven years. So what can you use? You could use coconut oil. Coconut oil is not as healthy because it's a vegetable oil, meaning that it doesn't have the important fat-soluble micronutrients that animal products have. So that's why beef, tallow, and butter are far healthier alternatives. And I actually prefer ghee as a source of butter. Organic grass-fed ghee and tallow, beef tallow. So if you're going to cook, those are I would recommend. But you could use coconut oil. Coconut oil isn't dangerous. It just, it's not as good as the others. It actually may be a little bit lower than linoleic acid. Because I think beef, 
what you said was the highest source. It's actually one of the lowest sources that in, about all the foods you can eat. It's like two or three. Even, here's the thing, with beef, because they're ruminants, if they, they're even, they're, even if they're fed grains, like just like the chickens, they have this biohydrogenation chamber in their stomachs that can actually saturate those fats. So the difference between CAFO with respect to linoleic acid and grass-fed is only about half a percent. Now, there's a lot of other reasons to eat grass-fed organic beef, right? Because of, the, because of glyphosate, primarily. But from a linoleic acid perspective, it's not a big deal. To know for sure, you can use chronometer, or you can, like I do, when you travel, like I did today, I brought all my food. And when I travel and I speak, I'm gone for, it gets a bit problematic when it's over a week, but I bring all my food, which is why I have to lug two 50-pound pieces of luggage to the airport. Because they have to bring the tools to, to cook the food. And this is chronometer. I would definitely recommend using it. And that's all she wrote. <laughs> but <laughs> now.